my name is Roger Citron, and I'm a professor at uh, Toro Law Center. This is a Toro Law Review podcast, and we're delighted today that our guest is David Gooderson. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And uh, David is an accomplished author. He writes novels, and we're going to discuss um, a novel he completed, I believe, that was published in 2022. It's called The Final Case. And so the first thing I want to say is um, thank you, David, for joining us. And the first question is, please just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. And um, I am uh, eager to have a good conversation today about the final case. But let me tell you about myself first. Uh, I was born in Seattle, uh, grew up in the north end of Seattle, uh, went to Seattle Public Schools, and upon graduation from high school, enrolled at the University of Washington, which is also in my neighborhood. Uh, and uh, after four years there uh, studying English literature, I went on, got a master's degree in creative writing and then a teaching certificate. And then I had a 10-year career as a uh, public school English teacher from about 84 to 94, 94 Snow Falling on Cedars, my first novel came out. And uh, after since then I've made my living as a writer. Uh, I lived, still live in the Seattle, Seattle area and, and I have lived here my entire life. Thank you. Um, and the, uh, I can't help but make the joke of, I, I hope you bought your home before Microsoft took off, <laughs> knowing Seattle. You don't have to answer that one. Um, the, um, uh, you know, so the final case, um, you tell us right at the start, um, at the beginning, um, that uh, it's a work of fiction. Um, and so one of the reasons why I wanted to, you know, have you on the Law Review podcast is because I teach the law and literature course. And so, I find, you know, the representation of law and literature very interesting. Um, and and yet you also say on that on that same introductory, you know, in that, that beginning, um, that there in fact was such a case um, in Washington State um, and and that you researched. And, and I don't know if you actually reported on the case that it wrote about it, but that you conducted a, a fair amount of research as part of the process for writing the novel. If we go back to to the early 2010s, what what drew you to the case, and and how did you begin to think of it as as something you could write about? Mm -hmm. Let me uh, first address your initial point about the author's note, in which I make a a prefacing statement prior to the novel's beginning. Uh, that author's note, and this is ironic in a way, uh, was. Uh, a function of, of uh, legal advice that I got. Uh, in other words, the publisher, the attorney for the publishing house thought it was important that we have a note like this at the beginning, make clear this is a work of fiction. Um, and I was, I was fine with that, although I created some, a, a sense of contradiction around uh, the opening line of the novel, which is a while back, I stopped writing fiction. Um, so, you know, um, 
what what that does for the reader is is just leave sort of a question mark about the tension between that author's note and the first line of the novel, which is it's fine with me if if reality is sort of up for grabs uh, in a novel. Um, and when I say an initial line uh, a while back, I stopped writing fiction. You know, that's just the author's attempt to create the illusion of reality, which is important to draw the reader in that they actually believe. Uh, and I didn't have any sort of metafictional notions in mind with that. I'm not particularly interested in the tension between reality and fiction or fiction commenting on fiction. You know, that there's none of that going on in, in this book. Uh, but yeah, this, this book is based very much on uh, a trial that actually unfolded here in Washington State, north of Seattle, in a rural county, Skagit County. It was um, June, I believe, May of 2011 uh, in the news. The word got out that a girl adopted by a fundamentalist and very sort of right-wing family there. They had adopted a girl from Ethiopia. That girl had been found dead of hypothermia just outside the door of the house. A couple of months later, her adoptive parents were arrested on charges of homicide by abuse. And then um, uh, in the summer of 2013, the trial began. And I attended every day. I mean, I did, went to pre pre-trial hearings, I, I went to the jury selection, and it was the longest trial in the history of Skagit County. It was seven or eight weeks. I went every day, and then I, I returned for the sentencing. Um, and along the way, I did a considerable amount of research about um, the legal process, aspects of the legal process that were unfolding that I didn't understand. I started looking up, for example, legal precedents. I started wondering about some issues that, per, that, that uh, were potentially in play on a potential appeal. Uh, I wondered sort of what the crux issues were in terms of an appeal. I, I, I just became grounded in the legal aspects of this, this trial uh, and learned as I went. Uh, but to, to get really, I guess, to more directly answering your question here, I, myself, my wife and I, uh, are the adoptive parents of a girl from Ethiopia. And um, she actually was available, as they say, on the adoption market at the same time as this young girl who died of hypothermia in her yard. Uh, and... So the adoption agency was local. My daughter and this girl were sort of had come out of the same moment and out of the same processes. I was part of a larger community of adoptive parents. I was a part of a community of adoptive parents who participate in the larger Ethiopian diaspora community in Seattle, which is a significant size. All of these things, um, you know, drew me to the case and then my interest in the case drew me into writing the novel. Um, there's, there's a lot there. Um, and the, 
Can you say a little bit about, you know, one of the things that we talk about in law and literature, and, and, and I really want to be respectful of, is sort of where we started about, it's a work of fiction. That is, you're telling a story, a, a, a fictional story. And, you know, there's there's all these things that you did um, to write the story in terms of whether it was research, imagination, editing, all those types of things. Um, you know, as you were observing the case, observing the trial and the hearings and so on, um, were you at that time also trying to if, like construct the story or was it rather or, or something else in the sense of was it, you know, I want to bear witness to what has occurred to understand this because of what's going on in my life. And then later on, you began to sort of think through what kind of story this could be as a, as a, as a novel. Well, so I first became aware of this incident um, in May of 2011. And I was immediately, when the story came out, the story broke in the media that this girl had died, this circumstances were suspicious. Immediately I became emotionally involved in, in that uh, and started seeing about myself that I was focused on it, that I, uh, I started to feel that something would come of this for me as a writer. I mean, not, not only was I feeling a personal interest in the whole matter, given my circumstances as an adoptive parent and as part of this larger community, but at some other level, I was disturbed enough by these events to feel like exploring them in writing. Um, to try to understand what happened and why it happened uh, was something I wanted to take on, not just at a personal level, but at a professional level. So I entered uh, the process in that, in the summer of 2011, of tracking everything that was going on, paying close attention to this thing as it unfolded. And then when the trial uh, began in the summer, two years later, um, I, I had, at that point I hadn't written anything and I was, I had no idea what I would write, but by the time that trial was over in August, I knew that I was going to write something, but I didn't know enough about the matter to do it yet. So the next step was to go to Ethiopia and find this girl's family, which I did. And, um, after that, I would say by the following winter, I began to construct a novel in my head around what I had learned and experienced over the last two or three years of thinking about this and feeling drawn to it. Um, the So I want to, it's interesting to hear from someone, you know, um, well past the age, for example, of, you know, many of the students at the law school, the way in which you um, really immersed yourself in the legal system. Um, and, and so I just want to sort of stay with, with that for, for a moment. Did, you know, do you have, you know, do, what is your sense of the legal system? And I want to say that sort of like in two ways, that is, one is, um, it, it, you know, it's it's 
common, you know, we, we always say, well, you know, trials are about storytelling. That is, there's a narrative dimension to the legal system. And of course, as a professional writer, I'm curious as to, you know, how you thought about that. But then, of course, there's the justice function um, of the legal system. And um, I'm curious to see that, you know, once you really sort of begin to, you know, to investigate or to explore the legal system, what you thought of it as, as you were, you know, immersed in it. Yeah, a couple of points here. Uh, so the final case is my sixth novel, and it's the second one that I've uh, set in a legal context and in a courtroom environment, largely in a courtroom environment, because uh, a trial presents a natural narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a natural sense of conflict. Is this person really guilty? What exactly happened? How's it going to turn out? You know, what's the verdict going to be? I mean, those things are just natural elements of the story existing in the real world. And that's why the whole genre of the courtroom trauma exists, because it has those elements that lend itself to what fiction writers do. And um, so, so number one, it has that sort of natural value to anybody trying to tell a story. It it gives you a framework, gives you a natural structure for storytelling, uh, which you can take advantage of. And um, but um, let me let me kind of go back a bit uh, to, so that I can put in context my interest in this whole matter. Um, so my father was a criminal attorney. Uh, he was born in Seattle, like me. Um, he. At that time, you could fast track your way through law school. They had a sort of a pre-law major that happened in about three years, something like that. And then a, the whole thing took maybe five or six years instead of now, I, I guess it's seven, um, four years undergraduate and three law school years now. But my point is, my father, you know, by the time he was 22 or 23, he was working in the legal world and he started out as a prosecutor. He did that for about a year. Um, can, can I actually, interrupt only to ask? I'm sorry. Just can you? It would it would be really just dates. In other words, when did he? So when did yeah. he like become a like what year to become a lawyer? Because yes, yeah, he actually. Sure. His, his My story father is about yeah. legal education. Yeah, sorry. Oh, that he, he was born in uh, December of 1929, and um, he started his legal work in the early 50s. He was in law school probably, you know, 49, 50, 51, 52 in college and law school. And by 53, I would guess he was underway as a prosecutor. And he worked as a county, King County deputy prosecutor, and he worked as a U.S. attorney. And I think his whole career in that on that side was about two years. And then he hung out his shingle um, solo uh, as a defense attorney, but he ended up um, teaming up with some other attorneys. Uh, and from his point of view, it was all about just streamlining and expediting his criminal law practice because the other people he joined within his firm, none of them were on the criminal side, but they were friends of his that he had met at law school, people he knew. And, you know, we can share office expenses. We can share the secretarial pool. I mean, my father didn't share in the uh, firm's profits, 
but he was a partner in the sense that he participated in all the expenses of the office. Now, he was with illustrious people. One of them, uh, Gordon Culp, wrote the uh, state bills for Hawaii and Alaska. And the other, Bill Dwyer, was the uh, federal judge and eventually a federal judge who made the spotted owl decision about old growth forestry. Bill and Gordy were his partners. So my father was with some really great people, uh, but he stuck he stuck with criminal law. He did only criminal law uh, until until he died. Uh, really, he worked up into about a year before his, his death. He had a very long career. And being his child, I imbibed a lot of his, I'm not quite sure what language to give it. I mean, uh, but he had a very noble uh, sense of the law. I mean, jurisprudence. And the sort of the, the idea of justice being a philosophical notion of questions like is justice sort of just uh, something human beings have made up? Is it a, a right that human beings have? Is it not? You know, um, what is justice? Uh, those questions were, were important to him and they became important to me. Uh, and I grew up with, you know, my father. Uh, he admired Clarence Darrow. I've heard of, I've ended up, you know, reading at a young age, I, Darrow's autobiography. And I, my father would talk about the Scopes monkey trial. My father um, uh, loved, for example, 12 Angry Men, the film, uh, A Man for All Seasons. Um, and so, just this sense uh, uh, of being, you know, you're innocent until you're proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I just got on board with that from an early age at the sort of the noble view of, of how really beautiful the whole concept is, that we have such a thing that we call justice and that we seek it. We put a lot into it. We put a lot of money, we put a lot of resources, we put a lot of brain power into getting it right, you know? And growing, growing up in my father's, uh, home, I sort of digested that noble view, view of the law. Now, when I um, when I started really getting immersed in this case, the one behind my novel, I began to see more inside the realities and the practicalities of the law, and I I, I grew to have a more balanced view. Yes, there's a nobility to the law, and and yes. A judge, this the, this pursuit of justice is is a wonderful thing, I, I, but the actual mechanics of it were not as noble <laughs> as as I had thought growing up in my in my father's home. And my sense of that started during jury selection, and it started it, for me personally the times that I've been called to jury duty, and sort of watched what the attorneys are doing. And I say to myself, you know, if everybody in this room really was about finding somebody who can be impartial and objective, and that's all they really cared about, you know, they want the law to work, they want 12 people who can be impartial and objective, they wouldn't be asking these questions, they'd be asking other questions. They're not really looking for that. They're looking for jurors that they can win with. And right away, I felt it's not what I grew up with, you know. I thought I was going to meet these noble attorneys who believe in finding 12 impartial people, but I didn't. And that's just one example of how I 
came to have a more, I guess, balanced and realistic view of the law than the one I grew up with. Um, this is such a rich point because, you know, I don't teach criminal law or procedure, but I do teach civil procedure and, and jury selection is certainly something we talk about, you know, in the second semester of the course. And this is, and it can sometimes open the door to, so why do we have an adversarial system? Because, right, the competition, the fact that we say, do your best to win, um, uh, can, can have um, that. a compromising the, the, or even On the one hand, your yeah. duty, your obligation as a professional representing a client is to win, to do everything that's legal within the law to win. On the other hand, you have this obligation to this sense of fairness and impartiality. So how do you navigate? How do you balance those concerns uh, going forward? Well, the attorneys that I came across in this case weren't balancing them. They only wanted to win. <laughs> and you can't blame them for that. And as you say, it's inherent in the nature of an adversarial system that you're going to, you're going to have that. Um, it's, it's part of the... the, the um, you know, no, no, no legal system is perfect. Uh, ultimately, my father said this over and over again. No matter how you construct it, it comes down to human beings. You can, you know, it comes down to the fairness, the decency, and the wisdom of the human participants in the case, whether it be the judge, the attorneys, the jurors, everybody involved. No matter how you construct the system, what kind of constraints you put in place or limitations or regulations or laws or stipulations, you know, in the end, it's about people. Uh, and, and I saw that clearly in the summer of 2013 at this trial. Um, I want to do sort of two, two questions regarding your father. One, you know, the person of your father, that is, uh, you know, him as an attorney, uh, probably one of my favorite professors in law school. Um, he not only did he teach criminal law, but he basically ran a criminal defense practice out of his office. It's, it's, it's a very interesting story that he got 10 years a tax professor and then decided he was a former William O. Douglas clerk and thought this is it's too important not to to be doing criminal defense from from what he had seen and, 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 and so on. But he said, and this is by the time I was his student, you know, uh, he'd been teaching and practicing for, for decades. And he said, it's hard not to become cynical. It, it's you know, to, to, to live in the adversarial system. And, and he was also speaking as a criminal defense attorney that, you know, with the, the passing of the Warren Court and, and, and the, you know, the current Supreme Court and the idea of, quote, harmless error, well, they violated your rights, but you're still guilty. So the conviction will be affirmed. He said, really, it's, it's, if this is something that you're thinking about, you're going to have to wrestle with that. And so the question is, um, your father, was he able to resist, you know, the, the cynicism, the nihilism um, that, 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 that I think is really part and parcel of, of being a criminal defense attorney or can be? Well, you know, you see all you see attorneys who develop all manner of strategies, including self-presentation, persona, yeah, who they appear to be to the jurors really to the entire courtroom, the judge. Look, we all have a number of personas that we can enact. We can be different people at different times. It's not phony. 
it's uh, you 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 modulate your self presentation according to circumstances. Now, my father's uh, manner in court was to always be plain spoken and very cordial and full of grace and and polite, never adversarial. If you you know never directly adversarial in a mean spirited way, never cynical about about anything, always showing belief in the system uh, that it's it exists to do the right thing. Um, ne never showing uh, anger or um, impatience. Now, he was really good at modulating his personality so that the uh, what he put out into the world was a sense of somebody who had no cynicism. And no, knowing him personally, I'm, I'm sure, be, look, being a human being, we all have cynicism. I mean, there's no escaping some cynicism. I think my father, like anybody, had some measure of it, less than most people, but he had some measure of it. I also know about my father that he really wanted the right thing to happen, you know, um, that no, no matter, even, even though his job was to get the best outcome he could for his client, he knew the whole time that really there was a appropriate response that the society should have to whatever had been done. And even though he was asking for something less severe than that appropriate response, in the back of his mind or in the front of his mind, he wanted the system to work. He wanted that appropriate, he would do his utmost for the client, but ultimately when he walked out at the end, he would say to himself, I lost, but what happened was the right thing. You know, he, he could be that. Yeah, no, very sincerely, because in these discussions, I've talked several times to defense attorneys. It's a very, very, I say this with 100% sincerity, it's a very healthy attitude to have, I, you know, and, and so th that's interesting. The The second question I wanted to ask, of course, is now when we go into the world of the novel, we have our, our fictional narrator, uh, and he's assisting his father, his elderly father, with with this case, this uh this final case, as it turns out to be. Um, and, you know, I, I want to sort of ask the question as broadly as possible, because, you know, uh, in what ways do we see your father um, in the character of, of Royal, uh, the attorney for one of the defendants in the case? Uh, in many, in many ways. I mean, a clear, uh, there's a clear one-to-one -one correspondence between my father and this a lawyer in the book named named Royal, uh, and um, you know what happened was uh, that summer of 2013, when this trial unfolded, was um, my father's last summer. Um, he had retired about two years before, knowing that he had lost some mental faculties. And during those two years, he went into a fairly rapid decline into dementia or Alzheimer's. And during that summer of 2013, when I was a, an hour and a half north of Seattle all the time in Skagit County at this trial, my father was going downhill rapidly, which meant at the end of the day, you know, when court ended, if I wanted to, I could drive down to Seattle and 
spend time with him, which I did. Um, and then that fall he died. So I guess you would say psychologically and emotionally, these two things got tied together for me. This was the summer of this trial, but it was also the summer of my father's end. And creatively, imaginatively, those two things came together in the novel. I mean, you and I have talked a little bit already uh, about the book that it's not your conventional sort of procedural novel where it, it builds towards this climax in which there's a guilty or not guilty uh, sort of ending. Uh, in a sort of surprise, I think, for readers, the book makes a turn, makes a shift about two thirds of the way through. It's not that the trial goes away or interest in the trial goes away, but what takes center stage at that point is the relationship between the narrator and his father and the larger family in which his demise is, is unfolding. And that family portrait, that portrait of the family uh, stands in juxtaposition to the family in Skagit County that uh, had adopted this girl and then abused her to death. You know, you've got these two families standing in juxtaposition to one another in the novel. And that was part of my intent. I didn't really want to write a procedural. I didn't really think it was interesting, the question of were they guilty or not guilty. I mean, what was more interesting was why did this happen? And why is this, was this one family this way, this other family this other way? There's more investigation into human beings than it is a, a legal procedural. Yes, yes. Um, and I know that uh, I, I don't want to sort of go there yet to, to, to the to the final third of the novel, um, only because I, I, you know, right, this is as a law professor and someone who teaches law and literature, of course, I'm a little bit obtuse about staying with the law here. And I just want to do that for, for like, you know, one or two questions more. Um, did well, I'm happy to stay with the law. I really am. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. I kind of feel like certainly conceivable that someone listening might say, he's telling, you, know, you, I, I, he's telling I, you to move on, but not yet. Yeah. <laughs> the, I um, do, have, do have something okay. to tell you about the law here. I'll just throw it out. Sure. Um, so this was a homicide by abuse trap. And, and um Homicide by abuse went on the books as a statute in Washington state in the 1980s. After this uh, case of uh, uh, abuse and mortality involving a three or four year old child named Eli Creekmore. And when Eli Creekmore's image began to show up in the newspaper and on the news and he had been brutally mistreated and died at the hands of these parents, this was the moment that precipitated a sort of political uproar we, we had no law on the books for something like this. Well, because it was a politically charged issue, the Washington State Senate took up this matter and created this law, homicide by abuse, created a number of other laws too that sort of were generated by the Eli Creekmore incident. But in their hurry, <laughs> they weren't particularly careful about some details, right? Because one of the assumptions people have about homicide by abuse, naturally, is that this is something that happens to toddlers and infants, you know. And in fact, in the 200 or so 
homicide by abuse trials in Washington state since the law went on the books, all of them are in fact, the vast majority of the kids are under five years old. Some of them are up to about 10 years old. Well, this case, the, the, uh, the age of the deceased became a question because they had made the age cut off something like in the law, they just threw out some number like 13 or 14 that they figured it wouldn't matter. But it turned out to matter in this case, and a lot pivoted on it. I mean, they disinterred her remains to look at her teeth, you know, and her bones, and, and to try to determine her age. They brought in experts to discuss her age. She had no birth certificate because of being where she was born. You could enter a, 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 a birth certificate as evidence, as you normally would, in just sort of a perfunctory way. Uh, they brought her close relative from... Ethiopia to testify as to her age. And all of these things came into play because this law just sort of, they. I went back in the congressional record and sort of, you know, they just yayed and nayed their way through it in no time. I even called the guy who brought the bill and he said, yeah, I do remember that we were, you know, doing three or four bills all out at Eli Creek more and, you know, the language wasn't careful. The language wasn't careful in more ways than one. And it really, reinforced for me something I, I, I already knew, uh, which is the language of the statute is everything. It is, not, it is not whether they're good people or bad people, nice people, evil people. No, the only question is, did they do exactly what this statute calls for? And the language of the statute is all important uh, and, and, and paves the way for, for everything that happens, you know. So the statute is ambiguous in some way or leaves a huge amount of room for interpretation. And there are all these other cases that get brought and all this precedent, all this arguing about the meaning of terminology that if they had just been more careful at the beginning, you know, could have uh, resolved some of that. One, one of the terms in the statute is the word torture. And the precedent in Washington state says that torture is defined in the com at, at common usage that we all know what torture means. Look it up in the dictionary, you know? But the prosecution took the chance of bringing in two um, expert witnesses on the meaning of torture who, you know, they flew in at great expense. And this became critical on appeal, right? Because you've exposed the jury now to all of this information about torture and you've, you've influenced how they view torture when in fact you never should have done that because the definition of torture has already been um, laid down by precedent. Uh, so there were some, I guess my point is, look, along the way, there were some, to me, really interesting legal issues unfolding that I, you know, even about, forget about being a writer, just being a person, being interested in what's going on, I found a lot to be interested in. Yeah, you know, the, and I, I, I was thinking to like last night I was sort of quickly rereading and I know some of this um is presented in the in the opening statement um of Royal um because he has a very you know specific response about the specific yeah. charge um uh I'm well, I feel like I want to go back to the to the actual case. That is the actual sure. case. And my 
I'll just ask, there was an appeal and I was the conviction affirmed on appeal? Yeah, in fact, it ultimately went all the way to the state Supreme Court and was affirmed at every level. And the uh, the two, the they're both serving long sentences. Uh, they each got something like 37 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the the I'll sort of pivot to the to the literary piece because you know as we corresponded um, before talking today, uh, you know I don't know whether this was something that that you intended or even thought about, but I went to um, you know uh, to kill a mockingbird and and Atticus and and Atticus's children and. It's it's imperfect to, to say the least. I just wonder whether, you know, what um, literary texts, you know, novels uh, about the law or or even more broadly may have influenced you along the way as you were sort of thinking through the story that you wanted to tell. Um, well, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is a good touchstone. Um, I would say, uh, with regard to my prior legal novel, Snow Falling on Cedars, that the question about To Kill a Mockingbird came up, uh, came up often, um, and rightly so. I, um, I was a high school English teacher and I taught that book sometimes more than once a year, probably read it 20 times um, and discussed it with students 20 times and knew, knew it inside and out. And um, I, I did like the way in which that book did at least two things simultaneously. It, it depicted a family and a relationship, you know, Sc Scout and Atticus and their family, Jim, this, this world of a family with its own sadness and its own love, and then the world of this trial. These two tracks are proceeding simultaneously and resonating with one another as a structure for storytelling is clearly there in the final case. So structurally, in some regards, this book does, you know, borrow from, uh, from, from to, Kill, to Kill a Mockingbird. Um, I would say in, in that way, particularly, it is uh, similar. Also, um, the narration, the first person narration, from the point of view of the child of the attorney, Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, there's a beautiful voiceover in the film, Scout's voice speaking to you in the film. And that right away creates a certain kind of emotional um, context in which the story unfolds. The feelings that a child might have for a parent um, are available when you have that sort of first-person narrator. So you can see the choices that writers make storytellers make. Who's the right person to tell this story? What's the right point of view for this story? And what's the right way to structure it? And how do those two things work together? And those are just two pieces. You know, there are a lot of other pieces to bring in into the mix and get them to organically fit the structure, the voice, the point of view, the landscape, um, and so on and so forth. The, 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 the characters, you know, everything's got to work together. Um, yeah, the, um, were there, um, were there 
you know, any other novels that substantially, you know, influenced what you were doing in this novel. Um, no, uh, I, mean, I, I there, there yeah. are no, really, really, I wouldn't say that any other novel really influenced this novel. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say in my, in general, uh, as far as sort of literary influences go, you know, there are writers I really, really admire. And I think of them as, you know, just in, incredibly good at what they do. And I have to tell myself, yeah, but that's not me. I have to try to do what I'm good at, whatever that is, and try to find it. So I try to push aside influences and talk to myself about, you know, what is it that I can do? Um, so for me, I have a funny relationship to literary influences, I guess. Yeah, I, in fact, I think the way you rephrased it, maybe that would have been a more helpful question because <laughs> I'm just, you know, thinking about, I know that, for example, um, I had the, the, the pleasure and the privilege of meeting Edward P. Jones after he wrote The Known World. And he said that he started researching, you know, the story of the idea of African Americans owning slaves. That he there was a it was a it was a germ of something, and then he started to research it. And he said, "You know what? I have to stop <laughs> because I want to tell my story, yeah. and I don't, you know, want those sort of influences seeping yeah. in directly or indirectly." Um, but but let me let, let me as, as they say, let me rephrase. And I'm just curious to um, who are some of the authors you know that you admire for yeah. For their for their talent, their ability, and that for what they write. Before before answering that, you mentioned uh, Edward P. Jones and his research, and then getting to this point where it's time to stop the research because you have too many influences. That happens to me. It's not that I feel I have too many influences, but sort of the way I'm put together, sort of mentally, is to to constantly go down rabbit holes. So if I do research, I mean, I can get so far away that after a couple of hours, I wake up and I, what, what, where am I? I mean, this was fascinating and I really, really enjoyed following this down this rabbit hole, but 99% of it has got nothing to do with the novel. It, became, it becomes an end in its own right. And I love doing it. Um, so at a certain point, I have to cut, cut myself off for that, for that reason. Um, now, as far as uh, writers who I enormously um, admire, among living writers, uh, Ishiguro was a Nobel Prize winner, um, a Spanish writer named Javier Marias, who is an um, incredibly talented, smart guy. Uh, another Nobel Prize winner who's South African but now living in Australia is Jam Kotsia. Uh, and then I also, um, I really admired W.G. Seabald, a modern writer, but he, he did, unfortunately, passed away in an auto accident maybe 20 years ago. Among contemporary writers, those ones have really spoken to me. Um, but but you know, sort of going back, <laughs> I, um, you know, the, the, the greats are the greats to me. Don Quixote. Um, Paradise Lost, The Divine Comedy, uh, Shakespeare, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm a Western classicist. I mean, I, 
I I I engaged those things as a as a college student. They got under my skin, and you know they're still there. I really, um, uh, you know, car carry those with me and cherish those sort of canonical Western texts. Um, yeah, and the the only comment I'll make because I don't want to. <laughs> We we don't have, we don't have all day, but really, um, Ishiguro, um, the remains of the day is often taught in law and literature courses, right? The cost, if you will, of service or, you know, the, the idea of the agent to the principal and, and the cost of that, and of course, it's so beautifully written, and mm -hmm. the question of the narrator and, and the reliability of the narrator. Um, is done so well. Um, to, turning back to to the final case, this is, um, you know, you 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 know you you let the cat out of the bag in the sense of saying, you know, there's in the last third the novel turns in a way that, if you're thinking, oh, this is a uh, procedural about a case, in fact. It, the novel goes in a different direction in that final third, and and I won't won't say more. But um, I, I guess I have two questions. Um, uh, and one is, um, did you know more or less from the start, or not, that you know you were going to go in that direction as you were, you know, headed headed to the finish line. Well, um, so uh, first let me say this. It's sort of widely taken as a truth that the thing that readers are interested in is what they turn the page to find out what's going to happen next. And that that's what they're really interested in. To some extent, yes. And I also know there's readers who absolutely love the page they're on right now and are reading for the page they're on like the beauty of the prose, the complexity of the situation, the, the characterization, the, the page itself is, is for me the driving force. Like what's going to happen? Actually, for me as a reader, to tell you the truth, I don't turn the page to find out what's going to happen next. I turn the page to experience the incredible tour de force performance that's happening on that page. You know, it's like listening to music. You're listening to the music in the moment. Um, so... I keep that in, in mind when I'm when I'm writing. I try to balance the concern for the reader's need to wonder what's going to happen next with the reader's attentiveness to the page itself and the page itself being a reason to read. Um, and that's really, really important to me. I, I, I guess I would describe myself as, um, I don't know if I'd say I'm a stylist, but prose matters to me a lot. I'm not trying to get, you know, to the end. I'm trying to make this sentence as good as it can be over and over and over again until the novel's finished, you know? And for me as a reader, part of the great pleasure is uh, the, the experience of reading beautiful sentences of great, uh, and of experiencing the great complexity of being human along, along the way. So now in the course of giving that very long answer, I forgot what your other, other part of the question was. <laughs> Oh, and this was, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was a plot-centered question in the sense of, uh, as you were 
you know. Oh, did I know where I was heading? Like, it, it, you know, yeah. was this, yes, was this, was this, did you end where you thought you would? Uh, no, I, or were you planning I, to? I have huh? never, I have never written a novel where I know where I'm going. I've never done that. I'm not capable of that. If I <laughs> had sort of an outline ahead of time that A, B, C, D, E, F were going to happen, and I'm I, there's a structure that already exists, and I'm sort of filling in the blanks. I would I wouldn't be able to write. I'd get bored. Um, for me, it's all about what finding out what's going to happen next and dealing with the problem that's in front of me as a writer right now. You know, like what would this person really do? Where would this really go? And you know, the old saying, "Character is fate." You got you you learn more about your character with every decision the character makes. And that's what drives the story forward. And you find out what's going to happen. I mean, I could be halfway through a novel and think I know at this point, okay, now I get it. This is where it's going. It doesn't go there at all. It really comes together in a very strange, inexplicable way with no real advanced sense of coherence, um, which for me is part of the fun and, and beauty of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, the... Uh... And then the, the second question about, you know, the the last third or so of the book, um, what you touched on earlier, which I, I really, you know, you know, comes through. In other words, it really, you know, the, this this juxtaposition of these two families. And uh, do you think in the end, you know, and, and it's, I almost don't know whether I'm asking about what happened in the real case or in your novel, I mean, it is the kind of horror that you that you learned about and then that you wrote about. Is it explainable or understandable, or is it is it just this is part of? I, I, God, I hate to say it, but it's because it sounds cliche. But right, it, it's part of the human condition that there's this some there's this capacity for 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 evil or wrong, um, and and sometimes it, it erupts or or flashes, and and we can do the best we can to make sense of it. But but anyway, there's a question. No, I, I, I I it's a good question, and I I am realistic, and I do believe there's such a thing as a psychopath or a sociopath, and, and that their conduct and actions do constitute inexplicable evil. Um, it, it was that the case here? Now, my tendency, my tendency is to investigate as far as I can uh, and learn as much as I can about the accused. And rather than assuming, oh, you're a sociopath, you're a psychopath, that's all I need to know. Um, may not be the case. They may not be a sociopath or a psychopath. They might be themselves psychologically and emotionally distorted by their circumstances, and that's at least part of the picture. They might have been naive, they might have been confused, they might have been under the influence of others, a whole construct of forces that are at play in, in somebody's life that can end in a kind of tragedy. Is somebody responsible for that tragedy? Yes, somebody ultimately is responsible for it. But I came away from this trial with a lot of empathy for the two who were ultimately convicted. 
and serving those 37 years, I got to know their circumstances and their lives really, really well. And I came away, I didn't come away feeling, well, that they, they don't deserve it and they shouldn't, you know, they, but I, very, I felt badly about it. I really did. I, I, I saw them as very human, very frail and human uh, and uh, rather than as evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, we, we've, I, I think I, I can't quite tell the clock, but I want to, um, I want to ask, do you feel like whether in the realm of law or literature, at least as it relates to the novel, this is kind of the, the, the catch all question. Is there, there anything we've, you know, missed that, that, that we should, that you'd like to touch on now? I do want to sort of give you the chance to. Yeah. I mean, I, um, to take, taking into account, you know, what we're doing, I assume that the people who are going to be taking a look at this will primarily be law students or people interested, interested in the law. Uh, and where does an interest in the law and an interest in storytelling intersect? Well, uh, as you said earlier in our conversation, a lot of the law is about storytelling, particularly in a criminal uh, uh, trial. I mean, the disparate, the complete opposite storylines that are being put forth, which we see in media every day. When the attorney you know, for the defendant says one thing about what's going on, the prosecutor says the total opposite. It's like, I mean, point of view, who owns the story, who tells the story, there, there is no such thing as a story. There is there's no such thing as what happened. There is only the interpretation of what happened. It's very, very difficult to establish anything as objective. You know, um, it's very, very difficult to know what happened. Uh, and that's where a storyteller and somebody who works in the legal arena intersect. We're, we're both asking ourselves those kinds of questions. Um. Very much, very much. And, um, you know, it's uh, one of the reasons why, um, while law and literature, you know, it doesn't have the same sort of centrality or primacy as, for example, law and economics. Um, it's still, you know, it, it still is something to be reckoned with. And so oh, absolutely. It, it, is, it is, you know, as that's a high school English teacher, I can tell you that I believe in the power of literature uh, in every regard in a human life. That this is one place where we learn a lot about what it means to be human, whether it's professional or personal or in any other regard. And that, that's, that's the power of, of literature. It's, it has uh, profound things to say about our, our lives and it's very much worth the time. At least I tried to make the case for that as a teacher. <laughs> um, really, I think that's in the parlance of the law as as good a closing statement as, <laughs> as we're going to get. Um, okay. I thank you so much for the time and the very, very interesting conversation. And, thank you. Um, thank you.